0: Well, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a sports writer and an author. And I finally, at age 56, have achieved the second thing. It took me quite a while. I've been a sports writer for a long time.
1: Hi, I'm Ben Hanani. Welcome to How Do You Do? A podcast featuring creative guests sharing the nuances of their process. Just a quick reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts is the most helpful thing you can do for the podcast. My guest today is Chris Clary. Chris is the tennis correspondent for the New York Times and has covered international sports for nearly 30 years for the Times and International Herald Tribune, where he was chief sports correspondent and a longtime columnist. In his new book, The Master, Chris sits down with Roger Federer and those closest to him to tell the story of the greatest player in men's tennis. Without further ado, welcome to the pod, Chris.
0: Thanks for having me, Ben. I appreciate it.
1: Of course. I was just telling you right before this that I'm a Lakers fan here in LA. I was born and, and raised here, and I grew up rooting for Kobe Bryant. And ever since he passed away, I kind, of, I kind of was searching for another athlete to fill that spot in my heart. And LeBron James is great, but it's just not the same as somebody who's gone from franchise to franchise to franchise. And recently, I've, I've really gotten into tennis. It's a sport I played growing up as a kid i took lessons every sunday for like five years and in the past few years i've been getting back into it and learning about the professional side as well and federer has been that for me he just captured me in the same way i think he captured you when you were watching him for the first time i was just like i couldn't believe the grace and just how he made things look so easy and so i'm and and uh, as well as his off the court presence so i'm curious like you were saying that you've had a common reaction from people my age, as you've been talking to people about this book. What's been that experience? What's kind of like the gamut of reactions you have heard from people my age to people who've been watching Federer for decades
0: now? Yeah, I think a lot of smart, passionate, you know, young tennis followers and sports followers with whom I've spoken in the last you know, 10 days to two weeks for the, the book launch and around the world really, in Australia, other places too, the book's really coming out in a lot of different places, which is exciting. But your generation, uh, it seems to not be as familiar with Roger's origin story and what made Roger the player and person that he is, as some of the older tennis fans would be because they followed his whole career. And yeah, it's, it's getting a little misty in the memory for all of us, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to do this book myself. I wanted to really dig back in in a profound way into uh you know Roger's whole story and how he became and the person that he is and how he mastered himself, which is why it's called the master, really, in a lot of ways. But I really have been struck and touched too by just how people have found that part of the book, you know, the beginning and his uh, his origin story, pretty poignant and and really speaks to them. And I, I think it should because I think we can't all hit the ball like Roger Federer, no chance, or move like him, or have this business portfolio at this stage. Right. But we can learn from his process, and I, I think it applies to many things. It doesn't fit everybody's personality. He's a different type than others, but I think that's a lot of people and I personally took a lot away from that part myself. Did you ever have any
1: thoughts or, or maybe even concerns that this is a guy who as, as you've admitted in the book, not too controversial of a guy he you know, he stays stays away from a lot of hot button issues. He's not necessarily a rags to riches story. I mean, he wasn't super wealthy his family growing up, but he wasn't poor either. Was there a thought about whether he could be a compelling enough character for a book or, or you were confident from the beginning that that wasn't the angle that was necessary, and you you had a, a special way of attacking this that excited you over the course of, I'm guessing like 120,000 plus words or so.
0: Even more than that, believe it or not. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> I kind of lost track after a while, but I think hopefully I get the structure worked. But I can yeah. tell you that that's a great question, and I have heard that comment. I know that when I first really pitched the book and with my agent and we talked about it with people, there was some sense that hey, you know, he's. He's a popular guy and a great champion, but you know where's the, uh, where's the grit and where's the, the grit of the story, I should say. But I personally never felt that way. And you know why? Because I felt like, one, there are so many stories of superstars in sport and entertainment who have had issues over the years. This is a guy who really has managed to have a clean run, not just a long run, but a clean run mm. in an era when everybody's so exposed to scrutiny and, and there's such a, a tendency to want to you know, knock people off their pedestal. And uh, he's had his his wobbles, and he's not, he's not a saint by any means. We all know that, and he knows that. But he's had a remarkably clean run, and I think that's pretty remarkable in this era, frankly, that that could be the case. And secondly, I felt like people around the world, from traveling so much and covering the circuit and covering sports all over the world, which I've done for a long time, you can sense when people talk about Federer, and there's a bit of this about Nadal as well, to be honest. There's this real special personal connection that they have right. with him, and uh, they feel like. They're really with him when he plays, yeah. and I felt like that if you're going to go book length, people want to have the curiosity and the interest and the passion to read about this person that they've seen a lot of. But if you want to dig really into different parts of the story and and really update it and kind of do a real retrospective look back, I think you need that that real strong connection to the athlete to carry you through that. So I really always felt confident, even though I haven't written any you know, big publisher books before, I felt there was really a, a strong market to tap into there and, and a strong Bunch of people, but not just in the U.S. or North America, yeah. but really globally. Because that's really, this is a global sport, and he is a global figure.
1: I totally agree with you that there's something about him, unique to him. When we're watching him, it feels like we're connected in a way, even though we're not. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's so fascinating to me. You've been around him, you've spoken with him, you've watched his matches, you've watched other matches of other players. What is it about him that you think pl- uh, people, fans, the casual fan? connect so deeply with i mean just if i had to guess from my own connection it's like when i'm at work for example if something's frustrating i don't have the luxury of slamming my laptop you know (laughs) like as many as many tennis players might slam their racket it feels like roger he takes the adversity as you and i might would in our normal jobs that's that's something that stood out to me is he his composure is something that really resonates but Mm. but that's just personal to me what have you found maybe personal to you or a consensus among fans is the thing that like gives him that deep connection
0: well i'm not sure i phrased it quite that way but in the book uh, i really wanted to try to answer that question you know why why yeah. has he had this enduring popularity with really not too many dips to be honest yeah. or maybe even any dips he's had result result dips but never really in terms of his uh, public standing which is also amazing in a way so why my sense of it from talking to people in the game I don't think I did enough market research with fans per se, or people that would be looking at this from a psychological 10,000 foot perspective. But my sense of it is that I think it's multi-pronged and your comment is quite interesting. That was not one I had thought of as fully, but it makes a lot of sense and maybe fits into what I thought. The elegance and pure beauty of what he does out there, I think transcends sport and certainly transcends tennis. I mean, if you're watching this as you kind kind of come across it on television, and better yet, if you see him live. I mean, you're just struck by that. He's a very fluid, elegant mover and expressor of his game and his craft. Yeah. So that I think sets him apart from almost any other tennis players ever played. Frankly, you hear people like Billie Jean King. I talked to you for the book, just sort of getting rhapsodic about it because you know she's never seen anybody who plays the game that beautifully, and she's seen a lot of tennis players over yeah. the years. You know. So I think. He appeals to aficionados and to the casual observer and somebody you might haven't really be interested at all. You can just sort of watch Lionel Messi with a soccer ball and go, right. wow. Yeah. Or you can watch LeBron at his peak do that and just go, wow. So same thing with Roger. And in a way that you don't really get that with Nadal or Djokovic or Murray, not that yeah. same sort of transcendent movement thing. So that's one thing. Second thing I would say is, um, and this is also, I think I've been important to the book. The guy's been a big winner, but Roger also has been a big loser. Mm. He has lost a lot of, critical matches maybe be a little bit before your time some of those um, big defeats that you would have you would have seen live
1: I saw the I saw the Wimbledon final with Djokovic though that was heartbreaking <laughs> yeah yeah and that's so
0: he's has he's had a long cycle yeah. you could make the argument which I say which I wrote the two greatest matches he played and he lost them both the mm. 2008 final to Nadal and the 2019 final to Djokovic at Wimbledon that's the tournament that still resonates the most around the world I think and those the first finals resonate the most and he lost his two biggest final he's won plenty obviously he won eight right. times there but those two great Transcendent matches, he lost them. And um, I think people have seen him vulnerable, and not just now or not just a little while ago, but throughout his whole career. I mean, he also was somebody who expressed a lot of emotion uh, Mm. after his matches, partly because I think he was holding a lot in. Yeah. He's not a natural introvert and Zen master. He has had to work (laughs) for that. So I think he's fighting nature there. And so a lot of that comes flowing out. I think people can really relate to that. And I think it's made him very relatable both the emotional access he's had, and he was kind of ahead of the curve on that for a male athlete, I would say, and also in his ability to uh, be resilient, come back from defeat, but yet face defeat. He mm-hmm. is not your, uh, you know, really uh, perfect all-conquering champion. And he really only was that for a very short time, back in '04 and, and '05, before Rafa merged on clay and elsewhere to uh, to menace him and make him feel his vulnerabilities. I think that has made him very relatable in a way that a lot of great champions in the sport might not have been someone like Navratilova, for example, who was sure. so dominant for a while and just, uh, or Serena, frankly, as well in periods of her career where she has obviously had a lot of, a, you know, emotional range in her life and, and has expressed a lot of things over the years, but she was really unbeatable at certain points in her career. Rogers only had that for a short time and um, these rivalries have really humanized him. So those are the two main things. And I think your last thing, your idea of composure, I think that's to me sort of fits into the elegance yeah. and the polish approach and sort of that's something that fits into that.
1: Yeah, to touch on the second point about some of the bigger losses he's faced, how do you go about asking someone about what I imagine are really painful losses, really painful memories? I know he seems to have a penchant for moving past them better than a lot of players, but, I mean, you talk to players who he's beaten, and, and even years later, it seems like they struggle to kind of recount and admit their own shortcomings sometimes. How do you, whether you're talking to Roger about a memorable loss or Andy Roddick or whoever it is, how do you how do you ask them about that kind of like painful moment in their career?
0: Well, I think if you just called them up and said, hey, 2009 <laughs> Wimbledon final, Andy, you know, lost fifth set, had that great volley, the tiebreaker, you know, and it's all you talked about, then it wouldn't be going very well. Yeah. But I think as, as anything, you respect and you have the empathy and you try to, you know, you fit it in. And in this case, it was very genuine. I, with Ro- Andy, we talked about that final loss to Roger uh, in '09 which is obviously such a painful loss as part of the context of a wider conversation. And that, that certainly helps. And also I think players, you know, over time, certainly not right away, but over time, I think they understand that these matches do have a place in the history of the game, whatever sport they're playing, but in tennis, so much emphasis on the history of the game, because you go back to the same places all the time and you have this sort of revisiting Wimbledon over 50 years, 25 years and things like that. So I think players appreciate people are still interested over time and that, Maybe that amount of time they've had to digest it, like Andy had you know, 10, 11, 12 years to digest that match. Obviously, it's kept coming up at times, but it gives you more perspective on it. Um, you can place it in your own timeline better and, and uh, I think uh, have a more um, nuanced perspective of it, I think that's right. and I, I'm sure Roger will be the same and already is about the 2008 Wimbledon loss to, to Nadal, frankly. I think both he and Nadal, I write, I write about this in the book too, they talk about there's a great quote from Nadal near the end about just how we've we've come to realize that our, our rivalry really, you know, means a lot to both of us and it's something we should take care of by respecting each other and, and our friendship and uh, and it's good for us and it's good for the game. And I, I think that's right. And I think Roger realized that even though he was the loser. I'm not sure he's quite there on the 2019 Wimbledon final against Djokovic. Don't know. Haven't talked to him about that one fair uh, since then <laughs> really. And so I, I would imagine that one still burns a little bit because of how close he was to something really extraordinary.
1: Yeah. One of the many things I really enjoyed about the book is a lot of times we'll read a book, a biography or or some kind of book, and the author doesn't insert themselves that as much as I would have liked because that was their choice or whatever the case may be. But they had so much expertise that I was curious about. And what I really appreciated about The Master is you've done 82 interviews, so there's no shortage of sources, which was awesome. That was really cool. And you you also hop in with your own expertise and your own experiences over the course of covering tennis for years, which for someone like me, who's getting into the sport just now in the last couple of years was really awesome. It was really cool to have that perspective. How did you decide when you wanted to interject your voice and when,
0: when not to, I guess. It's a great question. I'm delighted to hear it work for you because I really wrestled with that. Uh, My natural inclination is not to insert myself. Um, really, I don't feel like I'm the story and I never will be. So, People are reading about Roger Federer in this era in men's tennis, not about me. But I felt because this book, the reason I'm writing it, is I've had this ringside seat hmm. for so long to the sport before these these guys came along and Roger came along, but really during it. I mean, it's been an extraordinary the access you know through the New York Times and having the ability to uh, get my phone calls returned and my appointments made. It's not me; it's the paper. <laughs> right. Maybe maybe after a while you develop that rapport, but sure. you get in the door with the paper for sure. And so. I just felt the book was based around the idea that I had this ringside seat. I had had these extraordinary meetings and interviews over the years. I had so much material from those. But it really was about those meetings and those places, and it's obviously about Roger's history and things that we did I wasn't involved in, but that's sort of the reason for the book. That's why I'm writing it. There, there are a lot of federal biographies out there. This one is different because of the access to people. And I think also because I've had such a long time in the game as a journalist. So I said, I think it's vital people really who don't know anything about me or the book or anything else have at least some sense of where I'm coming from here. That's why I wanted to really set the scene of this interchange in the first chapter, which is in a car after midnight in Argentina, driving with him through the streets with these fans, like a rock star pressed against the window. And just really wanted to set the scene of us in these conversations. Because that's, to me, was sort of the reason that the book needed to be written because there was all this extraordinary material that I think deserved to get a spot out there. And so I tried not to do it too much, but I guess when I felt I had something really I wanted to say, and I also felt like it was important people understood my connection to tennis, how I got into it, how much it meant to me personally, how it kind of saved me in a lot of ways as a kid moving around so much. And that was my way of making friends and, and integrating my communities that I lived in moving so much as a Navy kid. So I thought that was important. And I also felt like when there were times when our meetings had a special flavor to them or whatever it might be that i would put myself in but i really tried to avoid doing it unless i felt it was really a strong urge I tried yeah. to fight the mild urge to do it yeah
1: that so came, I'm, I'm glad to hear that i'm glad to hear yeah. you think it worked because it was it yeah. was a
0: wrestling match that came through for me and one of
1: the things I, I especially enjoyed when you did bring in your perspective or you know when you were in a car with Fedor or whatever the case may be I noticed you would say like he chuckled or you'd note certain mannerisms that made me really feel like I was in the car. It's one of those things that you realize, oh, this is special because I haven't seen this done as well or, you know, in other things I've read. And... Was that a conscious choice? Is that something you're, you're mindful of when you're recording or you're noting? I'm just curious, like, if I were sitting in the car with you, what are the things you're keeping track of? What devices do you have on you? What are the things going through your mind, if there are any light bulbs going off as you're talking to these guys?
0: Well, I think whenever you have one of those uh, exclusive interviews, especially in an interesting place, that's your, you know, really your due diligence to your reader, is to try to paint the portrait of the scene. I think that's just good journalism. And good writing, the joy of a book. There are some definitely things that are not joys about a book, including the pressure of trying to structure it and do it and get it done and at that length and knowing how much it means to you personally once in you invest all that time. But what the great thing about a book is that it gives you room to roam and it gives you a chance to really, you know, paint these scenes in full. A lot of times in New York Times articles, you got a thousand words, fifteen hundred words. You need to get to you know the heart of the matter. You can paint in little, you know, brushstrokes, little things here and there in newspaper articles, but you can't really expand on the scene unless the scene is the story. Yeah, And in this case, I thought that was important because in the way the scenes were the story in this book. And uh, I wanted to really give people a sense of what it was like to be there, what it was like to be in front of him at different stages of his career and sort of engaging with him, how he was changing, morphing, just what that's like. And just sort of how he just goes off on these tangents and is flying his hands around and and is very exuberant and spontaneous in conversations in a way that he's not when he's in a news conference talking in his three languages and on the court where he's very pulled together. So that part I thought was important to convey what it was like to be in front of Roger. Is that the real Roger Federer? I don't know. I mean, what's he like when he's wrestling with his twins on the ground, having a great time at home or, you know, around the dinner table with Mirka. I don't know that. Mm -hmm. And so I can't, I can't speak to that, but I can speak to what it's like having been around him a lot of times through a journalistic lens. And I hope that came through.
1: Absolutely. And the last thing I want to ask before rapid fire is, as you're getting these amazing stories, doing all these interviews, what does the process look like for you at your desk, at your computer, as you're typing it up? What are you doing when you get unstuck? How are you taking 82 interviews and making sense of them? You know, what, if we were shadowing you during the writing of the book, what would we have seen?
0: Well, you would have had to take a lot of naps because there's a lot of late nights, that's for sure. I just think it's a wonderful question to hear for a writer because it is interesting, your own process, right? I was interested in his process. That's why I wrote the book. And um, my process was... Certainly not as as smooth as his recent progress, for sure. (laughs) I think the challenge was marshaling information and really uh, just like back in high school and middle school, it's about structure. When you're making your essay or your book at whatever the length, the structure is critical. And I think if your structure is not good, it's going to break down. And the biggest challenge in this book was I wanted to base it around places, places that we met, places that meant the most to him places like Écoublon in French-speaking Switzerland, where he went in at age 14, Basel, obviously, and then places in South Africa, for example, where the book ends. So all those things were important. But by doing that, just think about this for a second, by putting Wimbledon early where it had to be, because he won Wimbledon in 2003, he beat Sampras in 01, and he won the Wimbledon Junior title. It had to be early, but then so much happened at Wimbledon after that. Yeah. So <laughs> to, try to, to try to put that chapter there, I didn't want to repeat places, so you put that there to put that in to the timeline in a hopefully smooth way and an appropriate way was a real challenge. That was the hardest thing. But my desk looked like it always looked like a total mess. And I had, you know, post-it notes with chapters and what needed to go in that chapter. And I moved them around and it was it was kind of like a big movable post-it note board of things that belonged in which chapter and and which interviews. And I had to, you know, I'm, I had hundreds, maybe thousands of hours of interviews uh, for this, between my years of covering Roger and people around him, and then the 82 interviews for the book. So that was just so great. It's almost like you're on the beach and <laughs> there's all these fantastic shells, but the tide's coming in. Yeah. And the tide, the tide, in this case, is deadline. And you have all these amazing comments from people from all over tennis world and you're trying to pick up what you can and trying <laughs> to get it in the book. So that was, that was a, it was a good kind of stress in a way because it was good to have all that material, but it was almost an abundance of riches.
1: And was there something that you found yourself doing if you hit a wall to try to jumpstart? I just spoke with uh, Mirren Fader, who wrote Giannis, the new book about the NBA MVP. Yeah, yeah. And, and I asked her this question, and she said she enjoys baking. That's something that helps her get out of her head. She's working with her hands. I thought that was so so out there and so cool. And so I just feel compelled to ask you in case there's something that you do that maybe, you know, none of us would have expected.
0: <laughs> I would rather be somebody who helped with the housework around, you know, and sort of do things productively. I tend to go play platform tennis or go for a run, or I, you know, find a way to uh, do a million things, but not what I'm writing. But let me tell you, fear is a great motivator. And when your (laughs) wonderful publisher, Sean Desmond, calls you up and says, Chris, I've been nice, but you really got to get this done. (laughs) Nothing like that little chill that goes down your spine at that moment. and then "Mm," There you go. Well, on that happy note, we'll go into rapid (laughs)
1: fire. Conversely, if you could wake up tomorrow having gained one skill or ability, what would it be?
0: I mean, this is total fantasy, but I'd, I'd like to be like a, a folk singer and pluck my guitar and have the guts to do it in front of people. Who would you like to play in a movie about your life? Uh, I, would, I wouldn't mind. I think I mentioned Bjorn Borg in a few articles. I wouldn't mind having a little, little walk in Bjorn Borg's shoes back in his peak days as a tennis player.
1: I know you've traveled the globe quite a bit, but where's a place you haven't been to yet that you hope to visit? India. Mm, Never cool. been to India, and that's cool. a real hole in my education. And we have a playlist where we add each of our guest song recommendations, something they're jamming to right now or a go-to song for them. If there's a song you'd like to contribute to our playlist, what would that be?
0: I have discovered Sirius XM Radio, and I've been on the YouTube channel like nonstop whenever I'm driving in my car or anywhere else. I, I wouldn't give you one song, but it, and that certainly dates me, but can't get enough of you 2 Couldn't then and can't now.
1: Fair enough. And lastly, where can people check out your work, keep up with you on social media, get the book, plug all the things there are to plug.
0: Now, I haven't Instagramming yet. I I haven't done a lot of Facebook in my life, but I do a lot of Twitter. So Twitter is definitely my medium and social media. So I'm at at Christoph Clary. Love to hear from people. You know, I I hear uh, criticisms all the time. And I once in a while hear compliments, but it's good to have the interchange with people. And I post a lot on there. So hopefully people will connect with me there. I'm also on LinkedIn. So you can try to reach me there if it's professional uh, inquiry. And um, you know, the book is on Amazon and doing really, really well. So it's been very exciting. It's hit the top hundred for a little while, a couple of days after it came out and on Amazon, it's number one in a bunch of categories, I like think it's in tennis and uh, it's in um, sport history and sports biography. So those are really, yep. really cool uh, yeah. to see that. Really, really nice. Don't know how long it's going to last, but I'm enjoying that part of it. But I really, I'm sure you hear this a lot if you talk to authors, but I'd love people to, if they're going to buy the book, you know, obviously get the best deal you can. I'd love to sign them for you, but I really have gotten so much joy out of independent bookstores in my life. Um, there's a great one in my neighborhood here, Newburyport, Mass., near where I live, and called uh, Jabberwocky. So I just love those places. I know it's a little bit more on, the, on the, uh, the cost of the book sometimes there, but those places are worth preserving. So I would urge anybody who likes my book and wants to buy it to buy it in those kind of places.
1: Absolutely. And I'll take a second to plug some of our indies here in L.A., like Book Soup or Chevaliers. There are plenty more, but for anybody listening here in LA, I know we have quite a few. Those are places you can probably get it as well. Chris, thank you so much. This was a real joy. I mean, I was desperately searching for this book, so I'm so glad you wrote it. Thank you.
0: Uh, It means a lot, and interviews are only as good as the uh, person asking the questions, so I appreciate your good questions. Thank you very much.
1: I hope you found value in today's conversation. If you still haven't left your review for How Do You Do Podcast, I'm gonna walk you through the process right now, and it only takes 10 seconds. First, look at your phone screen and click where it says, How Do You Do Podcast, which is in purple. And if you're not seeing this, then you're probably listening to this on a different app. So I want you to click on where it says, Listen on Apple Podcasts, and then you'll see the purple link, click that. Then you'll just scroll past all the previous episodes, to where it says ratings and reviews, and all you need to do is tap the star on the far right, and you've left a five-star rating. I thank you in advance for taking the 10 seconds to do that, and I really, truly appreciate you listening to this episode. Thanks for sharing it with your friends and followers, and I'll see you back here next week.